Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. Recording in progress. <laughs> Recording in progress. <laughs> oh, Dave, you're always hungry, man. Oh, I'm, when are I'm you not starving. hungry? <laughs> I got to feed all well, my all my lean body mass and then also my fat. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to make it through this uh, introductory banter or do we have to do this another time? No, I'm excited about this. I am up okay. in the third floor right now, and I'm drenched with sweat. This is taking way too long already. We uh, made Brendan turn off his air conditioner because it was making too much noise, and he's, like, starting to sweat <laughs> profusely. I'm, 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 I'm dripping on this computer right now. I, I'm going to – I'm literally melting away right now. So, maybe You know, and I've, I've noticed you get really pissy when you get overheated. So I do not. Uh, Oh, yes, you do. Screw you, man. You get pissy as hell. Well, that's BS. Oh, yeah. Cranky, pissy. I mean, your family says the same thing. Peter's like, well, just make sure he stays cool or he's going to get pissy. Oh, God. I feel like we should talk about Peter's surgery. All right. Well, you know more about it than we do, probably. So Peter has uh, an issue with his eye. And he has to get a surgery called the Gunderson flap. Which is specifically what? I don't know. That's all I have. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the only thing that I remembered from my conversation that I had with my dad is that um, it was a Gunderson flap. And I just thought that was a cool name. Um, Well, you know, I'm kind of jealous because he looks pretty cool with the eye patch. Right, right. He needs a pair. I'm going to look this up. Hold on. Gunderson flap. Uh, my Gunderson flap technique. Wow, there's YouTube videos on it, man. Is there? So you can do your own Gunderson flap? Uh, apparently you can. There's a DIY a buy one, Gunderson get one flap? free kind of thing. Yeah, buy one, get one free. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, most people have two eyes, so. When is he getting that surgery? I don't know. I, I know. I know he's in a lot of uh, pain, <laughs> so we're making yeah. light of this. You know, so he's he's got two stitches that were supposed to be dissolvable in his eye that are rubbing up against his his cornea. So he he had a, a cornea transplant, and his body is rejecting that. So I, there's a bunch of stuff that's going on, and I know we all know about Peter's surgeries because we we hear about it on Facebook literally right. every, every other day. Um, but the Gunderson flap sounds really badass, right? Does <laughs> it sounds it sounds sexy? Uh, when, I don't really I don't know what kind it of sound, you're looking for, but like I don't know. Sounds kind of sexy, dirty. That's that's gross because I don't think of flap when I think of sexy. But hey, you know, can I? You're, you're getting older, Brian, so you never know. Can I? Can I tell you? Can I give you the story of the first time I ever met your brother, Peter? Look at the napkin. I'm sweating through this. Oh, my God. You are. You're a freaking mess. Yeah, your pissiness is going to start any time now. I'm already there. So so this was years ago at the Deep River Muster. I'd never met 
I had never met your brother and I was with all of my friends. And, you know, we were our big plan that year was we were going to run down to Westbrook uh, to like the Westbrook lobster pound or whatever. And we were going to get some lobsters and we were going to cook them, you know, right there on the field. Great plan and stuff. So so we're planning all that. And uh, it's like, OK, how many lobsters are we going to get? And then from like over two or three tenths over, I hear somebody say lobster. I love lobster. <laughs> Peter comes running over and it's like, oh, hey, OK, you're Peter Mason. Looks like we're buying you lobster, baby. And, and that's how I met him for the first time. Well, we, we, we consider him the Forrest Gump of our family because um, he's way more famous than we'll ever be. But he finds himself in these, these interesting uh, situations. Um, we went to a PGA golf tournament, uh, the, the Greater Hartford Open. It's now the Travelers, um, yeah. whatever it is, down in Connecticut. And uh, Peter was younger. He might have been like seven or eight. And he wandered off and we couldn't find him. Um, oh, no. So we went to, to security and trying to find him. Turns out he was eating shrimp cocktail at the VIP tent with all of the golfers after the event. He has that talent, though, of like, you know, like he, he, he'll he's the kind of guy who will like walk up to like some super famous drummer after a concert and say like, hey, you want to do a clinic together? <laughs> you know, right, and, right. And, uh, yeah, he did it with Billy Cobham. Right. He's like, yeah, I'm friends with Billy Cobham. I'm like, Peter, shut up. No. Stop. Why? What is going on right now? I, I actually have have a great Peter story. Um, we're going to have to save it for another time, but remind me sometime. It was in France. No, we're, we're hearing it now. I want to hear about the baguette. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it. All right. So um, The whole so thing. Even, even, <laughs> even all the good parts. I don't think Yvonne Russell is going to hear this. <laughs> so you know this story. Uh, it's a great one. Yeah. So, so, so we were in France doing some, some teaching. Um, it was right after. Right after I'm hearing feedback from somebody. Um, anyway, so it was right after Fosnock. So we all went over to France. Um, it was uh, Mark Riley, Kara. Um, I think Jeb was there and um, Peter and I, um, we all went over there. And so Peter gave, gave a, a demonstration um, of, you know, just a, a solo or something. And then he had scheduled to go out to um, a French bakery to learn how to make some French bread because he's a, he's a very accomplished baker. Um, he makes some really amazing stuff. And so he was so excited to, to go to this, this, this place and learn how to make a true French baguette. So, um, so Mark and I were, were teaching and, and, and the Fifers as well um, for most of the day with um, some of the French drummers and some military people. Um, and so Peter comes back towards the end of the day and he has the biggest smile on his face. He has this baguette that he made in a French bakery with, with a French baker who, who like, you know, took him through the, the entire process. So we our hosts um, there, which I'm not going to mention their names, although uh, Brendan already mentioned one of them. Uh, Yvonne <laughs> um, Roussel. Yeah. Yvonne Roussel. Um, <laughs> there I go. Um, but uh, so they, they took us around to, to some different places um, to, for some sightseeing and a winery and like all this stuff afterwards. Well, and, can, I, can I quickly say something for, for, for those of you who don't know, Yvonne Roussel is the, the French uh, I don't know what his official position is, but he's a, a French drummer. 
diplomat of drumming. Diplomat, kind of. He's a diplomat for the the government, right? For rudimental drumming. So he's a diplomat, and he's friends with literally everybody that I know of that has ever been involved with any sort of drumming. And he always comments on. Canavo. Yeah, he comments Canavo. But some background yeah. to, to Yvonne, he he's a drummer, but he only has one arm, right? Yeah, I, I think he, he doesn't have um, um, control over the other arm. He does ha- physically have it. But, okay. Um, but he's, he's but yeah, a super so, nice guy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he's a really great guy. And that trip wouldn't have happened without him. Um, <clears throat> so he's taking us to all these places. And Peter's bringing his, his baguette with him everywhere we go. And there, there's, there's no bag. There's no covering over the over this baguette. This is just a baguette in his hands um, or his pocket, you know, and, <laughs> and that's just kind of how this went is he was carrying it into all these places. Um, we actually weren't able to we missed our train um, because there was some sort of delay for the train. So, so we ended up having to drive um, to the airport to fly back to Basel. And um, so we stopped at a McDonald's and we're like sitting there eating French fries and, you know, Peter's eating French fries and the baguette's sitting on the table. It's almost like it needed a name and a pair of eyes on it. There was like a member of the family at that point. Um, but so like we're eating French fries and stuff. Nobody's washing their hands from the French fries and he's grabbing the baguette, putting it in his pocket to get back in this tiny little French car. And by this time, Kara's getting a little bit loopy, right? She, she's, she's just like giggly about a lot of things just because of everything being so overwhelming. And she's she's laughing at me now for even telling the story. I'm glad I'm not yelling. Um, so we're cramming into this car. Yvonne and uh, Joshua, who was another guy, he was kind of our interpreter for Yvonne. Um, was the, so both of them are in the front seat. Kara um, sat in the middle of of the back, tiny little French car. And so I'm getting in one side of. Uh, behind the driver and i look over and kara is just like laughing her butt off like like almost like she's just like giddy laughing because peter's backing into the car like he's he's going butt first into the car with that the baguette sticking out of his back pocket and it's poking kara in the face And but, you know, with Peter's he has such a good, um, you know, like sense of, of or like like a good um, attitude about a lot of things. So, you know, so we were driving along after that and Kara is still just 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 giddy. Um, and Peter says, you know, look on the bright side. We have French wine, French bread and we have five drummers. Well, four and a half. <laughs> <laughs> because Yvonne Cudley has one arm. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, and then so, take it further. You're going to talk about where he brought the bread? Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't need to tell the whole story, but the, the, the bread was a gift to his host in Switzerland, in Basel. And... So the following morning, we're we're all at uh, all us the, the military people. We're all at Ramstein Air Force Base. They're uh, catching a flight back to the U.S. and uh, we're all texting this guy and saying like, "Hey, like, how is the baguette?" And his his response was, "Why is everybody asking me about the uh, about the baguette? Please tell me nothing unsavory happened to the baguette." <laughs> Just, he's like hitting people, knocking things over. It's getting Kara's getting poked it was, in his head. 
broken in like three places, right, like right. French fried grease on it, and like it's just like, a like you know, it looks like a mystery. Right. It probably had one thousand fingerprints on it. Oh, absolutely. Which is another issue. At least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some say that was ground zero for Corona. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's the Peter Mason baguette story. Holy crap, I'm sweating so much. I'm just sitting here. I'm in a sauna right now. Oh, I feel like that onion. <laughs> that's a really funny story, by the way. The baguette story. Uh, well, anyway. So we, uh, so we spoke with Cliff Barrows and had a really good talk. I, I'll tell you that his daughter, Jessica, mentioned that the uh, conversation we had with Cliff, Cliff said it, it felt like four old friends having a chat, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it was definitely well, well, it was hard hard talking to him. I mean, like, I, I, I felt like we were all very comfortable. Um, yeah, and, and we were. I mean, from our perspective, you know, we had some questions that, that we had written down and stuff, but we went off that list pretty quick. Hold on one uh, second. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Colin, what's up? Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? We're, we're actually recording for the bottom of the glass, and you're on the episode right now. Oh, nice. Hello, everybody. All right. Well, we'll let oh. you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird, but we 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 were talking about Peter just now, so it's kind of funny you called. Here's Peter's counterpart. Here's Peter's counterpart. All right. See you later, Colin. Bye. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know. Anyway, good. yeah, it, it was a great interview. Um, I mean, he's he's been around, been around the block drumming, um, you know, and and just hearing all these stories. It's really cool for me to get the perspective because um, I didn't grow up in in New England, um, you know. So like, it's really cool to hear some of the history and, and to make more of those connections. Okay, you know, like this person studied with this guy, you know, all, all that. Um, you know, it was just cool. It was a really, really fun interview for me. Oh, yeah, it was a great interview. It reminded me of, of some of our favorite interviews, and, and I won't mention them because the ones that I didn't like, I won't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like when, when you can have that conversation um, and it feels like you're just catching up with somebody for an interview, those are the best, best uh, talks. And those are my favorite ones. Well, and, and so after we, we stopped the recording as well, I, I, we talked for what, an, adi- an additional hour? Yeah, we couldn't um, get off. Yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> it was one of those things where we should have been recording some of that, but, you know, yeah. not everything makes it into that. So, yeah, no, it was it was pretty good. And it was it was fun for me because I've known him for so long and I've done so many things with him outside of Fife and Drum. And we've had this uh he, he and I have actually talked about this and we don't know the answer to it, but um, we I believe we knew each other prior to Fife and Drum, you know, at least me getting into Fife and Drum. Like he was already in Fife and Drum because he started really young and I started, you know, when I was, you know, in, you know, 12 or 13 or, or whatever. But our our moms knew each other. And I tried to get this, you know, his mom's been gone for a long time and I tried to get this from my mom. A few years ago, uh, before she passed away, and she couldn't quite remember. You know, she remembers Jerry. She knows they were friends. But I said, look, did you get us together? Like, 
you know, for lack of a better term, like, you know, on play dates and all that kind of stuff when we were kids and she couldn't quite remember. But I remember I remember things like, you know, and I think I mentioned it like, you know, going to during the, the interview, like going down to the shooting gallery and shooting all his dad's guns because his dad passed away. His dad passed away young in the line of duty. He was a you know Connecticut state trooper. And so Cliff had all his guns and I bought one of them. But we used to take all these guns down to this. It wasn't really a shooting gallery. It was just like the kind of this valley with some berms around it. And I am confident that was before I was in Fife and Drum. Um, but I wish I could. I wish I could get a handle on that. But, you know, the sources for that are gone. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think we'll just never know. So, but uh, <laughs> taking all the guns out. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, yeah, exactly. We were, I mean, at that point, I think we were, you know, early teens and maybe we were 12 or 13 or something. I mean, we were really young, but I think it was before I joined the Chester Fife and Drum Corps and stuff. So I, I just, from my perspective, I, 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 I've always had a great relationship with Cliff. And I think that, um, you know, when we were doing the com- competition thing, um, that the Connecticut Blues and the Connecticut Patriots always kind of had that a little bit of uh, the competitive edge, um, yeah. you know, the, the little bit of a division there. But Cliff was always somebody that I absolutely looked up to in, in every sense of the word when it comes to uh, rudimental drumming. And, and when I was a kid, I wanted to be him. He was the guy I would seek out if Paul Cormier wasn't there. I would say, hey, can you take me, Mr. Barrows, or I would never call him Mr. Barrows, but hey, Cliff, can you take me in the woods and, and, and show me how that rudiment goes? Or can you pull my drum? And he would always, you know, pull my drum for me. So, um, yeah, You still don't know how to pull your own drum, do you, Brendan? <laughs> I, I never wanted to learn. <laughs> but back, back to my point, I, I talk about this. Um, I was talking about this with Mark Riley the other day, actually. There is just a handful of drummers that come from our community uh, that really do not have not gotten their their, their due diligence um, in terms of how great they are as drummers and, and their impact on our community outside of the community. Um, you know, Paul Cormier is another name. Um, Cliff is is, a, is is one that I, I look up to. Is like I wish that more people knew or know about him as a drummer outside of the fife and drum community because he's just. He's a beast, and he still plays incredibly well. So that's all. That was the point I was trying to make. Yeah, and that is a good point. He is a beast. He plays like a beast. He always did. And he's highly competitive in drumming. Right. All right, well, let's go to the interview. All right. Here we go.
Well, so we have really been looking forward to this interview. In fact, um, I think Brendan, uh, Dave, and myself have been talking about this interview uh, and putting it together for over a year. And I personally think that we are speaking with one of the greatest living rudimental snare drummers in the craft of fife and drum. Cliff Barrows started in fife and drum in 1969 with the Junior Colonials of Westbrook, Connecticut. In 1976, he joined the Deep River Juniors, where he started competing in individual, duet, and quartet contests. And I can tell you firsthand, because I was at many of them, his competition performances were phenomenal. His early drum instructor was the great Ken Lemley. Cliff has won numerous Connecticut, Massachusetts, Hudson Valley, and Northeastern championships. He is also a recipient of the Dan English Trophy, joining the list of incredible snare drummers like Bobby Redigan, Hugh Quigley, Eldrick Arsenault, Jim Clark, Paul Cormier, Bill Rotella, Jack Tenza, Howard Keneally, and other best of the best rudimental snare drummers. I'm proud to say that I've been Cliff Barrow's friend for most of my life. Now I can tell you, Cliff can be crude. Cliff can be obnoxious. <laughs> Cliff can even be a little bit offensive. And those are his good qualities. Now with that being said, he is also a great husband, He's a wonderful dad, and he is a loving grandfather. So, Cliff, let's do this. Thanks for being here. Glad to have you. I don't know what to say. Most of that's BS, but we'll go with it. Wait a minute. There is not one part of that that's BS. I stand behind my podcast biographies, and there's not one part of that I think is BS. Come on. That's on the Wait Wikipedia page. It's funny to me, Brian, that, that, that you said that, that you've been his friend and not <laughs> he's been your friend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they, that may not, that's not re necessarily reciprocated. That's for sure. <laughs> Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Um, all right. Well, listen, let, let me start because this is going way back. Um, I mean, I knew your mom, Jerry. She was very involved in fife and drum. Your dad was a member of the Essex Sailing Masters. Tell us about your entree into fife and drum. Um, were you just destined to do it, or did your folks just prod you along uh, when you were a kid? Well, I wasn't. I don't think I was destined to do it. Um, my dad joined the Sailing Masters, and actually my introduction to fife and drum uh, performances was the sailing masters went down to uh, Valley Forge. I think it was 1968. And I remember sitting on this field uh, on the hill next to a field where they're doing some sort of reenactment. And I got run over by a, a, pr a prisoner. I want to say it was a prisoner from the uh, um, ancient Mariners, but I can't remember. That was a couple of years ago. Um, so was he wearing uh, no shirt or was it an orange jumpsuit? Cause that's how I can tell the distinction. <laughs> Sometimes it's the same. Um, I don't remember. It was a long time ago, but after that, I just wanted to start playing. And my dad brought me to the Westbrook firehouse where I started playing Fife. Um, that's how I started. And then he passed away in 69 and then back in 1971, 
Uh, that's when I got back into it as a fifer still. And then I started taking drum lessons in 74, I think, or 75. I'll say 74 from Kenny in the court. And I've been here ever since. So you've been inter- influenced by many people um, throughout your fife and drum career. Uh, your early instructors, Ken Lemley, Dan Mullins, Paul Cormier, and Bill Rotella. Um, how have their influence? Um, I didn't take lessons from Bill. I just competed against him. Um, oh, okay. And he passed away, I think, last year or the year before. Nice guy. Really good drummer. Nice person. At his own studio. Brendan, didn't you take lessons from him? Or was he just up in your area? I think I took one. I think the only time that I actually met him was at one of the, the juniors camps um, back in like 2001, 2002. He brought some books and, uh, and talked a little bit about his different um, stuff. But so how did those guys influence and shape your rudimental drumming style? Well, Kenny obviously taught me. So that's, that's the roots there. Um, like everybody always says something about my pinky hanging out of my left hand. Oh, uh, it's uh, some Bobby Thompson style or something. I don't know. Um, but what, you know, that's that one, Brian. Yeah, um, this one? Yeah. Okay. Um, but the way it was to me was Kenny's, you know, drummers, sometimes their hand will be over like this. And Kenny always said, you know, your, your palm, the heel of your hand has got to face down. And he just said, stick your pinky out and it'll hold your hand over. That's where it comes from. No, no stylistic or anything like that. It was just from Kenny saying, stick your pinky over and it'll keep your hand upright. So that's where that comes from. Um, then I started taking uh, private lessons from Jim Clark. Uh, I want to say 70, 76, 75, because um, I want to do the competition thing. And that's where the rudimental breakdowns and things like that came from in my competition solos and my successes that I had in the you know, competition. So now the Danny Mullen um, and Paul Cormier, they were instructors in the blues. That's how, you know, I know them and how I learned from them. Um, so that's pretty much it. So speaking of running on rudiments, how do you think that helped your development as a drummer, particularly a, a champion snare drummer? Well, you, you should know. Um, I want to ask you. <laughs> well, if you're breaking down rudiments, you're obviously concentrating on how they play and how they sound and how there's how the spacing of the notes is supposed to be um, from very slow to top speed and out. And there's there's no way breaking down rudiments cannot make you a better drum. Um, especially, like, you know, work, working with the different levels that you have, um, especially at the slower speeds, you know, you get the three different levels and you try and carry those through from the medium speeds up to top speed and then back out again. So just out of habit and just muscle memory as you're playing, those should stick as you play. Um, except for me with flames, you know, it's <laughs> blowing up all the time, but uh, it does help. I see, I see. I, I think that you started to convince everybody else that you had more pop flams that people just kept giving them to you. You Thank never you. had that many. <laughs> uh, well, like I always say, Cormier always said that when I got old, like I guess I'm old now, they were going to call me Pop Flam. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's where that came from. That's funny. You that's know, uh, so so uh, Ken Lemley was my instructor too, and I remember it, like he even made the bass drums. Breakdown rudiments as well, you know, which I thought was 
very helpful. It sucked, but but it was very helpful. Um, At the time, you don't want to do that. You just want to learn how to play. You don't want to learn. No, how to play. Ex- exactly, because it sucks. I mean, you know, breaking down a rudiment sucks. It's you know, it's 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 not fun. But you know, when you look back on it, you realize how much that helps you with the rudiment, like getting from here to there, and then and then back again. You know, smoothly, and it's a big deal. You know, so but you know. So Ken Lemley, to me, he was uh, a scary dude, a scary dude when you first start, right? He he was a very scary dude, but he wasn't necessarily a hard ass like I've heard about, you know, Bobby Redican and all that kind of stuff. But he was extremely exacting. You know, he was he was real critical and he was pretty exacting. Um, Now, one thing I remember about about Lemley is he could really tell when you hadn't been practicing, oh, yeah. you know? So do, do you have any instances where you walked into a rehearsal and he said, holy shit, man, you haven't done anything in the last week? Yeah, it happened. And then yeah. it was also the thing with um, how, how, how you held your sticks. Yeah. Uh, and if people will say that he would reach out and smack your stick with his stick. <laughs> like, boom, fix that. And there were times when he missed the stick and you go, I don't want to cry. Okay. Gotta fix my fingers. Um, he'll catch you a couple of times. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's the truth. <laughs> Wait, what did he say? <laughs> no, I mean, fix that. You go back and you go, it's like, that wasn't sick. You know, and you're like nine years old and you go, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sugar. That's the goddamn that's true. I've seen that happen well, once or twice to myself. <laughs> it's the way it was. That was the way it was. But then again, after after a couple of years, you know, once Kenny accepted you as a drummer, and you learned that's the way he was, um, and you could talk to the guy. I mean, I I, I miss him. Um, he was a super nice guy. Um, after, when, when Cooperman's first started in Essex, I would go up there and just hang out in their old shop. I mean, there was Pat Cooperman, um, Dave Body, Eddie Classy, and um, and Kenny there. You know, we just go there. I, I, they probably hated me showing up. They liked me showing up because I was spending money because I just kept breaking drum heads. But they probably hated me showing up because these guys weren't working. I was just yakking them. because right. they had a big table where they used to put the drums together that it was covered with carpet. So there was always drumsticks around. Hey, it's a drum shop, and there's drumsticks and drum shop. So they start playing, and we start playing on the carpeted table. And the next thing you know, it's like a, I probably should go. These guys are getting paid to probably work. <laughs> was uh, Kenny Lemley the, the one that famously said, "Don't make it personal"? <laughs> was that him, or was that someone else? I don't. I don't recall that. Yeah, yeah. I don't recall that. Somebody but, else was calling us that on on one of our interviews that that, that we did. Um, they asked him something and he said, don't make it personal. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't answer to that one. I, I don't know. So but I will say one thing, um, when I was a police officer in Old Saybrook, um, Kenny moved on Old Saybrook and he lived on Old Bokum Road. And we would go up there for medical assists every once in a while. And he'd always say, you know, come stop by the house and we'll drum some. I never did. And, um, and then the night before he passed away, I went to the house and I put him in the ambulance and mm. I never him. And, you know, to this day, it's like, why couldn't I have taken an hour 
and just stopped by and hung out, played. Right. And I, I, I do regret that deeply. Mm. Mm. So everybody has regrets in their lives. Um, that's one of them. You're right. Absolutely. Right. So moving on a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about the early days of the blues? Um, you know, you, you guys had such a large, um, really rocking crew, um, talented musicians, um, lots of names. We don't need to, to mention them all, but, um, can you talk about some of, some of those great musicians that you perform with in the early days? I'm still like, I'm a fossil. Oh, I, I am. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I joined the Corps in the winter of 78, 79. And at that time, the snare drum line was three of us, and I was one. One was Subby Ciarcia. He was a converted bass drummer. And the other one was Mike, Mike Severino. Um, and John Wrestler was the bass drummer. Um, after that, we started building up and getting more people as they aged out of the juniors. Um, and at one point, our entire snare line had been a state champion at one time or another. Wow. Um, and the same with the bass line. Um, but that was pretty impressive to me in my head. Um, and the, but the, the Fife line was just, I mean, when you had uh, John Benoit out there, who, whose music is phenomenally written, no matter where he writes for us, um, you know, your core, um, the stuff that he wrote for you guys is just beautiful. Um, yep. He was, he was, he was a taskmaster for that Fife line. I'll tell you that right now. Um, scales, exercises, um, swearing at them, yelling at them. Uh, they used to do aerobic. Sorry? They used to do like push-ups and sit-ups, right? They had like this. I never saw that. I, I, saw I heard that. they had, they had like aerobics that they did while the, the fifers had to do before practicing. I can't remember that. I, I can't help you with that. I don't know. Well, I, I like oh, it. Sorry. <laughs> but I mean, everything worked. I mean, the, the way his method worked with the Fife line, I mean, they were phenomenal. Those people were just incredible musicians. And not that they aren't now. I mean, a lot of them are gone. Um, no, the but, Fife line was beautiful, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I have a recording, I think uh, 81 state me or 83 state me, and it's just beautiful. And it's the blues playing uh, Outlaws and Aaron Bow. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and you can hear it in the rehearsal. You can hear John Benoit screaming at them during the rehearsal. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. It was, it was intense. It was like, and they were playing so aggressively. It was beautiful. Beautiful fife and drum. The exercises that the fifers play, I'm thinking, how do they do that? I mean, there's no way, like, like, you, like Brian said with Ken Lemley showing up knowing that you, you know, you didn't do anything for the pre previous week. I would imagine that if the Pfeiffer showed up and somebody or somebody or a couple of them didn't like practice some of those um, exercises and pedal tones and scales, uh, that sucks. Stop it. Just, just go home. You know, let's have a John has mellowed quite a bit over the years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but still, I, I still enjoy talking to the guy. He's a super nice person. He's an incredible musician. He writes and arranges things like nobody else I've ever really noticed. Um, it's ninety percent of the music we play is blues. Is um, blues music? Obviously, it's blues music, but it's um, Benoit music, Benoit right. music. 
Yeah, right, speaking right. of Cormier, I, I, I know you know Paul Cormier obviously uh, after the Blues, but but tell us a little bit more about Paul during his time with the Blues. There, some of the, the compositions he wrote. Um, I think like Country Dance and, and Outlaws. And, and Actually, Country Dance is before Brian, uh, before Paul. Is it? Um, the only thing that Paul wrote, as far as I know, was the last song called Sonatina in C Major or whatever. Paul wrote those. Wrote that that part of the um, of that of that piece. Mm. Uh, he wrote Outlaws. Um, landslide, um, almost all of our street sequences, um, um, Aaron Bolt was written by Danny Mullen. No, yeah, yeah, Danny Mullen. Okay. That was a Danny Mullen job. But Paul was a lot of fun. Um, we just, we playing, playing. We didn't, we, we don't, didn't do exercises. We still don't. No offense, Brenda, but thank God. That's um, fine. <laughs> they drive me nuts. Um, but Paul would we play, play, and play. I'll never forget one night before a state meet, we were down um, on the water in Middletown for a rehearsal. And there was, I think we had seven snare drummers and two bass drummers. We, we warmed up and we played through Outlaws and we played through uh, probably Landslide. He looked up, Paul was in the middle, he'd look back and forth and go, let's do it again. Hmm. We played it again. Let's take off the drums. I'm thinking, okay, what's wrong? He said, I'm not going to mess this up. It can't get any better than that. Let's go get a drink. Wow. So, raffles. <laughs> <laughs> Paul was just like, no, we're done. We're, we're going to make it worse. So we just took off the drums and we went to raffles and we had a beverage. I like that. Right? Yeah. Once it's good, it's done. Work you can't get any better. Right. You're gonna mess it up. That's awesome.
So, I mean, I, I miss Paul. He's a lot of fun to talk to. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, I haven't seen him in a couple of years now. Um, Brendan, you said he's got to be up what, close to 80 now. Yeah, yeah. He, he shows up to Patriots rehearsal, uh, I would say, at least once a month. So, yeah, it's it's good to see him. Yeah. And he can still play like nobody else. He, he definitely could if he wanted to. But I, but I think he's one of those those guys that if it's not up to the standard than what he's used to, you know, he just doesn't he, – he just won't do it. Right. Um, not much the same way that John Benoit was or is. Yeah. Um, so, actually, I'd like to talk about the Blues now. I mean, every drum corps that has been around as long as, uh, you know, the Connecticut Blues goes through those ebbs and flows and – with uh, membership and, and just, you know, overall enthusiasm. So now tell us what it's like now, you know, with everybody back, you guys have a huge group. You have a ton of enthusiasm, really, really fresh happening sound. Tell us what, what it's like to, with the emergence of, uh, of the blue crew. The, well, Josh is our marketing expert. Um, he's also the director of the court and he runs the drum line. Um, we've gotten a lot, a lot of new faces in, um, it's a whole lot more fun playing when you got nine people in a line, even though I got to send a telegram to my son at the other end. Um, <laughs> with yeah, the field goal posts. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yo, Pete, look. Then the echo's got to go down the line to get there. Um, but when you're playing with that many people, I mean, it's phenomenal. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, you didn't realize that I was recording. Sorry. What's up, dude? <laughs> but when you get that many people and it's in a snare line and now our baseline we think we have eight stand in deep river wow yeah it was it's like they call that the boom crew in the back and uh it's it's a lot more fun when we go to rehearsal and say you got five guys showing up at rehearsal it's like where is everyone it's like there's nobody there um but then you get you know deep river and when you got nine it's like holy crap there's a lot of people here and then you get you got to go through the shoot to go down the field. And okay, how are we going to do this? Okay, the two guys on the end fold back. If the four got, you got maybe you have the two guys on each end fold back to get through the shoot and then come back out again. Right. Like remember last last time we marched in Westbrook, I think we had seven snare and we couldn't fit down the road. Um, so if we're going to have nine this year at Westbrook, we're going to be probably doing the same thing, folding back, which is okay. Right. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, Chris. So speaking of family, um, and you have a lot of family uh, kind of wrapped around the blues, um, but your, your father was a police officer. You became a police officer. How does it feel to have your son, Peter, follow in your footsteps and your dad's footsteps and, and to actually then have your daughter, Jess, be a frontline healthcare worker? How does that, how does that feel? How does that all wrap around for you? it's not easy to talk about because when Peter first told me, of course, the tears started falling. Right. I'm very proud of him. And then when he went to the Academy and actually, um, he actually didn't get to finish the Academy at, at, at the facility because of COVID. So he ended up doing like, I think like another month, month and a half, um, remotely like this. Um, but he's, he'll be on, two years now in Waterford in November. Uh, incredibly proud of them. Uh, a year ago in August, in, coming up in August, they had a little ceremony at the police department in Waterford where, you know, tra- traditionally, if there's a member of the family who's a police officer, 
they get to pin the badge on their son or whatever daughter. Uh, I got to do that at the ceremony. Um, and I was, it was tough. And then for my birthday this year, um, they gave me uh, a three section fo- photo, photo. I can't talk. Three, three frame sections of photographs. One was a picture of my dad. One was a picture of me. And there's a picture of me and Peter. And I lost it. It was, it was tough. And um, of course, now I, of course, now I have to worry about more about his safety going to work because I know what it's like being a cop for a long time. So I have, you know, I worry about him being safe. And then now, just being a nurse, my mom was a nurse, so again, she's following in her grandmother's footsteps. Um, very proud of her. I mean, after she came out of uh, nursing school. She got hired, and the next thing you know, COVID hits. So it's not like an easy um, meld into her profession. She got slammed with it, especially since she works. She's an ER nurse. So um, not only do you get normal injuries, uh, traumas, or whatever, now you got COVID on top of it. And um, she's done very well. Very proud of her. Um, Matter of fact, she's going to work in about uh, two and a half hours. So, you know, she's doing well, hanging through, and uh, proud of both of my kids. Awesome. I'm not, I'm not proud of my, my in-law kids, um, but you, you, just, you just asked me about my children. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. So you won the Dan English Trophy. Um, <clears throat> a list of... Um, let's stop right there. Dan English Trophy is, was the perpetual trophy, right? For the senior, we're forgetting somebody who's sitting over there. Like, at least on my screen, Brendan's over there. Okay. No, see, see, I, I was actually going to ask you what what advice you can give to Brendan on how to be a better drummer. No, we're not going there. Uh, because when he was a junior and I was a senior, I'm going. I got I got problems. You know, I'm watching the play. Oh, I got problems, big problems. Uh, the only reason Brendan didn't win the Dan English Trophy was because it was retired. Because it. It was like the, uh, um, like the, uh, the Stanley Cup. They kept adding bases with rims, and everybody's name gets engraved on it. When I got it, it was the, the bases were huge, and it just got the top kept falling off, and it was it was rewelded by people. And Landcraft finally retired it. Brendan's name would be on that trophy too if if they kept rewarding it. Um, when they retired that one. Um, they came out with the um, the Dan Mullen Trophy, which I th- it's it's a beautiful big silver cup. Um, it lo- I, th- I actually think it's a champagne cooler that they engraved. Um, but again, it's the same thing. The bases on there have plaques where people have their names engraved. Um, Brendan's name is on there an awful lot. Um, so I didn't want to cut you off, Dave. I just the Dan English Trophy was cool, um, but Brendan's name would have been on it too if they kept. Um, Kept rewarding it. I'm uh, pretty sure that Brennan wrote this question anyway because he he asked uh, how humbling was that, or was it? <laughs> oh, that was Brian that wrote that. What? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! The <laughs> trophy was it, it, to me when it I won it in 1982. Um, they first awarded it in 1932, so I was what the 51st person to win. Oh wow! Um, and I think about. The people's names who were on there, and 
my name is also associated with those people. Now, uh, it's an honor to be up there with, you know, Howard. I met Howard Keneally. Paul used to bring Howard down to uh, the Westbrook Muster. What a super guy. Um, Paul, obviously we know Paul. Uh, Hugh Quigley, Arsenal. Um, I met uh, Jack Tenza, another nice guy. Um, because they had a get together at the uh, Landcraft Hall one night for all the Dan English Trophy winners. Redican. I met Redican twice at uh, uh, Jaybird's Day. Mm -hmm. Um, I I didn't really get a chance to talk to him a lot. I just met him. Hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. And was just about it. Um, did but, did they so- ever talk to you about your drawing? Like, did did Redican ever like in the few times you talked to him? Did he ever look at you and say, "Hey, man," and you were you were young, you know, uh, at the time? Did he ever look at you and say, "Shit, man, you're you're a pretty damn good drummer." Was it ever any conversation like that? No, I don't remember it. Yeah, um, I heard he was pretty critical of people. Um, whether that's accurate, or not, I don't know. Uh, but he, I guess they can, he's from the era where there was a whole lot more. It seemed like the stories I hear, they're more, uh, I don't want to say rival, yeah, maybe the rivalries, but they weren't friendly rivalries type of thing. Right. Uh, I, these are the stories I hear. I, I can't answer to it truthfully because I, don't, I really don't know. Um, but to be associated with all those people, is, it's, it's I, I, I consider it an honor. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When when I was a junior, obviously the the Dan English Trophy had been retired at that point, but the Dan Mullen Trophy that was something that I looked up to. I wanted to be on that trophy with with guys like Cliff and and Dave Fontaine and another one of my teachers, uh, Matt Mayot, um, and you know so many others. I, I think um, you know that was a, a thing that that I definitely you know looked forward to to trying to to compete with. Um, this is kind of a tough story for me to tell sometimes, <laughs> but can you tell us the story about that time that we went into a playoff and, and maybe not necessarily <laughs> what happened, but to me, the aftermath and who we were playing in front of and the, the letter that we both received from, from Paul and, and just how special that was. Yeah. Um, prospect, the two, me, and, me and Brendan had tied and they had to have a playoff to state meet. So we go to play, um, and the judge was uh, Al Merritt. And sitting behind Al Merritt was Paul Cormier, um, Paul Mayat, and Bill Rotella. And the Rudimacue was the Ramacue. Yeah, Ramacue. Flamacue. Um, so we go to play. I played first. And I went out there, and I knew I was playing for the judge, but I wasn't playing for the judge. I was playing for the guy sitting behind him. Because I, I just enjoyed playing the show more for them because I knew they would appreciate it more than, you know, a mark. Um, to me, that meant, that, that, that meant, meant a lot more. Um, I ended up losing to the other guy uh, in the end, but again, you know, was I a little disappointed yet, but did it kill me? No, because Brendan obviously played better. And I, I just enjoyed playing the show more than I, I really cared about winning. I had won enough. I just did it. I just went into the competitions because I liked playing the show. I mean, that's just the way it is. But um, that was a fun day. I still remember. I'll never forget it. 
Yeah, and and, and you know we we both received letters in the mail from Paul and Paul <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, no, it, it, it's just it it the result didn't matter. It, it still doesn't matter. It, it's just the fact that there was a, a big group of people there watching, and then front and center uh, were those three, and 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 it was just a really really special moment. Do you remember the the last line or two of Paul's letter? No, I mean, he gave us he gave us both a lot of great compliments. Yeah, and, and coming from Paul in his own handwriting meant a lot to me. But the interesting thing that I I thought when I read this last part of the letter was we both got copies. You remember that? Because yeah. no, that way nobody would have, I wouldn't feel slighted if Brendan got the original and Brendan wouldn't feel slighted if, if I got the original. I thought that was, that was pretty forward thinking. Yeah. Uh, but I, I had that letter put away somewhere. I don't know where it is right now. I'm sure my wife has a file somewhere, but I, uh, that's something like you would put in a frame Maybe even on a refrigerator, but not on a refrigerator because it might get wrecked. Uh, but if you put it in a frame, you might get wor- worried about it getting bleached out by the sun and losing it. Right? So that's why we have it put it away somewhere. Right. Right. I see a bunch of metals like over your shoulder, like in frames right now. Uh, and probably a lot of those are first place metals, which uh, pisses me off because uh, I got a lot of second and third place medals because of you and Russell Rankin, for God's sakes. <laughs> so uh, I don't even want to, I don't want to visit that right now. It's so evil. I actually like to hear about that, Brian. I want to hear. No, I don't want to talk about it really. <laughs> I, I, I was Russell Rankin and, and Cliff was his snare drummer. And, and Russell Rankin was the bane of my existence because. Can I, can I ask you a question before you continue? Who was your snare drummer? Uh, it was Rich Higgins, who was a fine snare drummer with the Junior Colonials. Where is he? Very now? Hurt. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> Actually, I think it was a Westbrook, and he owns a uh, concrete business. See. He owns a concrete business. He has brick hands. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, no, he was good. But, but so, so Cliff and Russell would, you know, we'd go to these, we'd go to these, um, you know, winter competitions in New York. And I mean, we did a lot of them. We did them all the time, Cliff, right? I mean, one year there was 13 winter meets. Yeah, it was it was just nonstop. It was every, every freaking weekend. We, you That's know, kind of we fun, were, actually. No, it was, it was fun. And your parents took you someplace every weekend. So my mom would load us up into the car yeah. and drive to Southbury, South Meriden, West Hartford, North Haven, um, everywhere. Yeah, was, everywhere. And there were times like three, uh, 691 through Middletown wasn't there. So in order to get to Bristol, you had to go the back roads. Yeah. yeah. Long time, um, but yeah, those are good days. Man, was, I, I, I'd love to see those meets again. Those winter meets were just—they were so much fun. They were now, so much fun. Brian, do you remember this? Okay, individual Glock and female Glock and Spiel, 16th place with an unbreakable tie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So many people would show up. Yep, it's true. It's true. 
Six individual Glock. Breakable tie. Yep. <laughs> individual oh, Glock. That's too fun. I missed that stuff. That was so much fun. And then, and then judging that stuff later, like trying to figure out which classroom was going to be yours. Oh, yeah. was good. Yeah. good time. Yeah, that's how we Harold Collins. Harold would be, be a judge, you know. And then there was Ruth Collins. <laughs> Ruthie was, Ruthie was the, um, too damn loud. I'm sorry. He used to have a stamp. That said too damn loud because that was his comment after everybody that everything that played used to write down too damn loud and somebody caught on and gave him a stamp. So under every sheet, he would finish his score with the comments with a stamp that said too damn loud. I don't have one of those. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Funny. We call him bald man, actually. Um, Funny side story. I was friends with his grandson or yeah, his grandson. Um, Eric Island in Cheshire High School, and we we would go and stay at his house, and we would drink beers there when we were in eighth grade. So we were cracking fertilizers, and all of a sudden we hear, "Don't move!" (laughs) There was bald man in his underwear with a cigarette hanging out and and a shotgun. You know, like what are you doing? I was like, "Oh, it's me! It's me!" Because we called him Bald Man. What a great guy! I got I got two Russell stories for you. One's a Harold Collins. Uh, it was the the year me and Russ aged out of the Junior Colonials. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the Westbrook Juniors. Wait a minute, Deep River Juniors. Deep River Juniors. Some cranial fluctuation going on here. Um, we were at the, the uh, meet in I want to say it was Wallingford, and we're getting ready to march the G formation as you march on stand. Harold run, walks up behind behind Russell. Now Russell's an inch or two taller than I am. And Harold was what? Five foot and one? Maybe. Five three? Yes. He walks up behind Russell, who had long hair, and he goes, <laughs> so Russell's hair goes up like this. <laughs> so Russell just looks back and goes, knock it off. <laughs> and we had to go on. So we get on stage, and you know, it's supposed to be attention, all that kind of stuff. Harold walks behind Russell. <laughs> 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 so that's that's Harold. Um, and again, another to move on. I guess Harold's father was a firefighter who passed away, um, and he would take his mother to this there's this organization called the Hunter Club in Connecticut that takes care of the widows and families of firefighters, police officers who die in the line of duty. And my mom, my mom would go over here because my my dad passed away, and she would see Harold up there with his with uh, his mom. So it was, you know, like another, another little, you know, sideways kind of uh, connection with Fife and Drum and the outside world, if you will. Right, right. Now, Brian, you said about Russell. In, okay, we're going to go back to ancient history. 1977, at the state meet was in Newington. Okay? Yeah. So back then, the bass drummers had to have a snare drummer play with them for an accompaniment in the individuals. Right. Correct. Now, Russell was the reigning state champion. And this was the year I was also going to compete. Um, now, I felt it was more my responsibility to play for him because it was he was the reigning state championship, state, state champion. So I had more of a responsibility to play for him because he was defending a title, um, even though I practiced my ass off that year. Um, so I went and the stand ran late and the, the bass drum stand was separate than the snare drum stand. Um so I went and I played, wait, play for him. And I went and the snare drum stand was closed by the time I got there. 
So I was like, I was mad because, you know, I wanted to go play. Hmm. So they ended up um, talking to the people on the board of the CFNDA and do the reasoning. They let me, you know, they, they went and found Ruth. She was the judge and a time judge. And they let me play, you know, the like ad hoc type of thing. And I ended up winning that night. Um, but that was just another Russ Rankin story that I felt, you know, I felt an obligation to him more than I felt to myself. But yeah. in the end, it worked out. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a cool story. Um, so, so I have a Russell Rankin story that goes back uh, four or five years ago and I saw him at Deep River. So his job now is he like digs the graves and prepares the graves at, you know, the Deep River uh, Cemetery and the Winthrop Cemetery and all that kind of stuff. Sounds like and, you were doing that at those uh, CF&DA meetings. <laughs> I have to go to you. <laughs> oh, screw you, asshole. So, so anyway, so I'm talking to Russell and he says, hey, listen, Brian, just so you know, when your time comes, let me take care of your grave. I'll make it real nice. We're talking some crushed stone, some Kentucky bluegrass. I'll make it real pretty. Your family will be real happy. And I'm like, okay, Russell, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't say, hey, when is your time? Let me take care of it. I'll bury it in a bass drum. I'll dig the hole. I'll yeah. plant you in your drum. And we'll, put we'll, all those, uh, we'll put all the second place medals on there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a number of second place medals because of him. <laughs> <laughs> what a bunch of dicks you are, all of you. <laughs> all right. So let me ask you this, Clippy. What? What do you uh, Brian? Now, now that you're getting a little older. Easy, you're older than I am. <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't Two. think I am. Wait. No, not. Certainly so, got a reading level. <laughs> so what so how do spelling be? <laughs> have you seen differences and changes in your drumming? Yeah. Like what? It's slowed down. I can't. <laughs> I mean, I haven't. I can't play like I used to. I mean, maybe if I practiced, like I might be able to get maybe to eighty percent of what I used to be. But um, I, young kids, don't listen to this. I really don't practice. Um, I don't have the time. You look like you practice a lot, actually. Nope. You really do. I mean, I, I looked at a lot of video from Deep River of you guys, and you are as snappy as you've ever been, as far as I'm concerned. Hey, hey. <laughs> I mean, put it this way. The stuff that we were playing, I've been playing for, what, 30 years? Yeah. So it's there. Um, but here's another reason I've, I, I, I don't think I can play like I used to. I've had both of my shoulders operated on. Um, and, like, I don't know if, Brendan, if you remember, the last time that we had a state meet, um, you know, you, this the starting position with your hands up in the air. My right hand did not go back far enough. So I actually had to do this, push it back, because it just doesn't go. And um, in my left shoulder, I don't have a rotator cuff. So after about a minute and a half or two minutes of playing, my shoulder drops out. So that's just what it is right now. Uh, Maybe if I practiced more, it would build the muscles up so I could play longer. 
but um, you don't realize how much of what happens down here is related to what happens up here. Hmm. But it's just, you know, age breaking things down and everything else, not breaking down rudiments, breaking down bodies. Um, But I still enjoy playing when I play. And I got the, I still got a blister right there to prove it. Um, And it's got to be that that much more motivating to know that you have like that, the group that's there all the time now too. Because I, I, yeah. I know before that you, you you were coming around. You're like, oh, man, I just I wish we had more guys. And and you guys have it now. It's it's just a, an incredible turnaround. Um, it's more incentive to, to actually. Okay, man, maybe I should uh, bring my game up because I got guys here that. Um. Yeah. It wasn't good. really that long ago either. It was only maybe like five years ago that I remember seeing you guys with maybe I think it was just you and Pete. Um, on snare, and then a handful of fifers, and and maybe a bass drummer. Oh, average would be me and Tim. Yeah, Josh jumped in. Mm-hmm. Then there was a the number of years when Peter was playing baseball uh, in the summer leagues from college, and then professional when he wasn't around at all. Um, and then once that you know that came to an end, and he moved back here, uh, he came back to the drum court. Mm-hmm. That's why, I mean, Pete was in South Dakota. He came back here because of family and drum court. He missed he missed the muster in Deep River so much one year that he actually called me on Saturday night after a game. Mm. Um, and that's I mean a couple of years ago we were me and Judy were talking about moving, and we said we can't move out of Connecticut even though it's so expensive here, but we can't move out of here because of drum court because drum court people are more family than. Family, sometimes I hate to say it that way sometimes, but the drum corps people are closer to you than sometimes blood family. And that's why we're still here. So with that, you've you've been in the hobby for for I mean your entire life, a bazillion years as Brian wrote in this question. (laughs) I'm gonna change this uh this question actually, (laughs) because I I don't like it. I think there's something more. (laughs) to ask and that's um that's where do you where do you see fife and drum going it's been changing for for ever probably but you know like especially in the last couple couple decades um and you know with with college groups starting up but a lot of the fife and drum corps is kind of dwindling how do you see us coming into the semi-quincentennial um and the future I before he answers that question, Dave, we're just going to get a recording of you asking this question. Like the uh, stamp? Yeah, too damn loud. Too damn loud. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so, <laughs> what I can say is this, Brian, of the four of us, me and you were the only ones that were around for the uh, bison tent. Right. To, to perform. Um, and you saw in the early 70s a resurgence of the Fife and Drum Corps because of the Bicentennial. Um, and there were hundreds of them. And then once that was over, things started to dwindle. You know, people didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and now it's starting to come back a little bit because of the by Quinn some some David Centennial or whatever whatever the hell you said. Too damn loud. Perfect. I think it's starting to come back some because of you know that 
national anniversary coming up. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I I see the downfall of our our hobby, our activity, our love is electronics. Is you know kids want to spend time on the computer, on a tablet, on their phone, and they don't want to um, pick up a pair of drumsticks or a fife and practice or learn. Um, society's changed too. Parents are too busy to spend that kind of time that our parents spend with us to take us around the rehearsal every week or to performances every weekend. Um, I see a lot of that has gone downhill over with society over the last probably 20 or 30 years. I've seen that in my job. Um, not as it would relate to drum corps. I just see parents spending less time with their kids. Um, and that, that it scares me a little bit in, as the way society's going. Um, and it also disappoints me because they don't know what they're missing with spending time with their kids. I mean, we spent as much time as we could with our kids. Um, we kind of dragged them into drum corps and no, they, they still like it. Um, and we never stopped them from doing any other activities, especially our kids were huge in sports. They did that too, but they would always say, Oh, we got drum corps rehearsal practice, you know, after, after a game or after whatever. Um, so they still love doing that. Uh, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting. I'm hoping that people pick it up. I see, I see, do see somewhat of a resurgence in the fife and drum world. Um, I'm more than happy to get, especially our drummers that have joined our corps that have come back from uh, their DCI careers. I mean, that doesn't hurt them in their playing. And, but and like I've always said, drum corps is always going to be there. It's, 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 it's there. I mean, we can't kill it. We don't want to kill it. We have no desire to kill it. It's fun. It's we, we've been friends for how long? And we're going to be friends till the day we die. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, the great jam session in the sky, if you will. Um, yeah. This is always going to be here. Like I said, we, we didn't move because of Fife and Drunk War. It's just like I can't imagine myself moving to Pennsylvania. Um, you wouldn't make rehearsal, that's for sure. Uh, and making, what, two jobs a year, three jobs a year? Um, like Brian, I give you a lot of credit living up in at Maine and Dave, you in Virginia. I mean, it's a lot of driving. It's a lot of going um, to see your friends and then do what you love. Yeah. Did you ever um, did you ever take a break from Fife and Drum, like even for six months or a year or seven, seven months, seven months? When was that? Um, Jess was born January 2nd of 86. Like I say, she was 40 hours and 16 minutes late for my tax deduction. Um, <laughs> so I stopped. That's like I, I never let her forget it either. And it's not a birthday until 416 p.m. You know what? I'm, I'm actually I'm actually going to remind her of that myself next time I talk to her. Okay. And, and okay, uh, I'll, I'll really throw on the guilt. It'll be it'll be tough for her. Yeah. That's okay. No problem. Um. So we said okay. We're 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 done. Um. And we went to a couple parades, and it was the Brantford anniversary parade in July or June of that year. And we went and we're watching a parade. I'm going, this really sucks to watch a parade mm. after marching in them for all your life and playing. You go, okay, I saw a drum corps. I saw, and you see what 
maybe 15, 16 measures and it's over instead yeah. of cleaning or performing for people. So that was, had to be in June because I went to the deeper of muster and Patty Benoit and John were still on the court. And I walked over and I said something and Patty goes, hands me my uniform. You want to play? So when you see pictures of the blues with me, with my red rim drum and no hat, that was the day I got back in. Wow. Cool. I don't know what to do on a weekend. If not, I'm not working or I don't have drum work. It's weird. I've never had a job where I didn't work a weekend and I, or if I wasn't working, I didn't have drum work. I, 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 okay. I, I don't think I can be normal. I can't work Monday through, uh, okay. In a work schedule, I know I'm not normal, but I, but working Monday through Friday and having weekends off to me, it's, it's a totally alien idea. Unless it's where days off and I'll fall in the rotation, but right. I got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I remember coming back from, cause I took 17 years off from Fife and Drum. And mm-hmm. I remember coming back the, the day I came back. I didn't know I was coming back, but it was at the Deep River Muster. And one of the first people I saw was you. And everybody else. They stuck out. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Dave wasn't uh, around. Now, Dave wasn't around. This is a long time ago. This is 20 years ago. And I looked over and I saw you. <laughs> And you were looking at me, and then I walked over, and then we chatted. And uh, that was the first time I had seen you in, like, 17 years. Oh, well, I actually you? was around 20 years ago, Brian. Yeah, no, Dave was actually back in Pennsylvania farming the farm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he wasn't 12 feet tall yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, he wasn't. It was great, yeah, picking up the grays. Right, right. <laughs> Pennsylvania. Well, listen, this has been awesome, Cliff. Um, thanks for spending some time with us and chatting with us about your history in fife and drum and kind of giving us uh, some insight into the Cliff Barrows mind, which is a little. We haven't gone there, right? <laughs> we have not <laughs> gone that deep. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a nice chat, and we really appreciate your spending some time with us. Appreciate it. I, I feel honored to do this. I like talking to you guys anyway. So cool. Cool. Uh, thanks, Cliff. This was an honor. This is great. Uh, thank you very much. You ask me if I love you, and I choke on my reply. I'd rather hurt you honestly. They mislead you with a lie And who am I to judge you On what you say or do I'm only just beginning To see the real you And sometimes when we touch The honesty's too And I have to close my eyes and hide I want to hold you till I die 
Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you Till the fear in me subsides Romance and all its strategy Leaves me battling with my pride But through the insecurity Some tenderness survives I'm just another writer Still trapped within my truth A hesitant prize fighter Still trapped within my youth The honesty is too much And I have to close my eyes and hide I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you till the fear in me subsides at times I'd like to break you and drive you to your knees. At times I'd like to break through and hold you endlessly. At times I understand you and I know how hard you try. I've watched while love commands you. And I've watched love pass you by At times I think we're drifters Still searching for a friend A brother or a sister But then the passion flares again And sometimes when we touch The honesty's too much and I have to close my eyes and hide I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you till the fear in me Charlie Watts, rest in peace, and thank you.
like this podcast and would like to support the bottom of the glass go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the patreon link on our facebook and instagram pages and thank you program produced by michael blancaflor edited by brendan mason hosted by brendan mason 
Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkins. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor. Logo was done by Andrew Ruddle.